Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Verses 8 and 9. Um, at Eternal City Church, we like to use Scripture to interpret Scripture because we believe there is one author of all 66 books, the Holy Spirit. And there is an interconnectedness throughout every book of the Bible. The major theme is the God who saves, the God who saves. From Genesis in the garden where the snake crusher is promised to Revelation where the snake is actually crushed. It's one story of God redeeming and saving a people for himself. Four stages, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. We find ourselves in the third part. Creation, fall, we're in the redemption section. However, we still see tragedies happen, as Justin just prayed for. And it's a reminder to us that Satan is at work and that evil is real and that we have on our hands choices that have eternal consequences. Okay, people have entered into eternity whose names are now all over the news. And they're in one of two places, all depending on whether or not they knew Jesus savingly. Okay, these are weighty matters. And though it's regular for us to gather week by week by week, we sing songs, we take an offering, we pray for the children, we hear God's word, this is not unimportant or unweighty. This is one of the weightiest things we could be doing because what we're doing is we are worshiping the true and living God and we are seeking to hear from him most clearly through his word. And so we are saying, God, what do you want to say to me? God, what have you said to me? How should I now live as a result of what you are saying in your word? And so our desire is to accurately interpret the text and make real application in real time for you tonight. And that's the goal. Now, Philippians 4, 8 and 9 clearly follows the whole letter. And it's closing. It's closing up the letter. In fact, you see the finally there. Um, don't worry about nine being cut off on the screen there. I have a slide later that has just nine. You'll be able to read it just fine. The finally there is Paul wrapping up his exhortations, his do this, his commands. And these are the last, if you will, the last of commands, though he has some instruction to follow. This is the, the last section of exhortation. Here's what we have. We have a way of thinking being presented to us. You see there at the end of verse 8, think about these things or meditate on these things or fix your mind on these things. What is being given to us here is God's will as it concerns to how we should manage our thought life. Now, remember, this section of Scripture is being taken uh, from uh, a section of Philippians that has to do with conflict in the local church. Let me quickly remind you, Eodia and Syntyche have had troubles, and the exhortation from Paul to this companion of his and to Clement and to others in the church whose names are written in the book of life, which we find in Revelation, is to help these women 
to agree in the Lord. And remember, Vince so masterfully uh, exposited for us last week that you, you don't have the public mention of names in a public letter if this is a private dispute. So this is a public dispute. It was threatening the church. And so Paul, after three chapters of gospel theology and Jesus' humility and you do likewise, he says, church, come along these women, help them to agree, and I want this church to be unified. And then he says, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything, pray, pray with supplication, which just means requests, with thanksgiving. And what's going to happen as you pray, instead of being anxious, the peace of God is going to guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's what's going to happen. And the Lord is near. That's the promise. The Lord will be near to you. And the, the idea is the nearness of God to you personally will be an antidote to fear, to anxiety, to doubt, to I can't do this. The Lord is near. That's the encouragement. And so in that context, what we have is finally, in light of don't be anxious, in light of the God of peace will be with you and near you, we have from Paul what we should be thinking about. Let's read 8 and 9 together, and then we'll start to go through it word by word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, what I want to do is I want to go through each of these eight, think on these things, meditate on these things, and open them up for you, okay? Open them up for you. Because if we're to think about these eight things, then we should at least know exactly what is being talked about. The first one is true, whatever is true. Now, this truth can be translated, and it means this, faithfulness, firmness, reality, reliability. And it's what conforms to the gospel and to God himself. And so we know that Jesus himself in John 14 said, I am the way, I am the truth. Jesus said, you want truth? Here I am. And so ultimate truth, ultimate reality rests in the person of Jesus Christ. He is where we find truth. He is where we go for truth. And you remember when Jesus was on trial before Pilate, a fascinating phrase Jesus gives to Pilate. He says this, anyone on the side of truth listens to me. So you want truth? You're on the side of truth? You will listen to my words, you will agree with my claims, and you will walk according to my words. Now that's astounding, okay? Truth embodied in a person. Now where do we find the claims of Jesus? Well, we find them in the New Testament most clearly and alluded to all through the Old Testament. Now let me remind you of this. Jesus made outrageous claims that got him almost killed many times and eventually did get him killed by the purpose and plan of God. 
but it was definitely his repeated truth claims that got him killed. Let's think of just one at the end of John chapter 8. You remember Jesus is in a hostile crowd. He's being accused of having an illegitimate father. And they, the Jews, the, the, the ones who were opposing him, say, we have Abraham as our father. We don't know who your father is. And Jesus, interestingly enough, says, before Abraham was, I am. And with that claim, they picked up stones to execute him by throwing rocks at him. Now, that, that's a painful way to die. Like, I don't want to go out that way. Death by being hit with rocks. Now, now, why were they so upset at that? Well, you remember there was a story in Exodus where Moses is encountering a burning bush that is not consumed. And this burning bush is God. And the burning bush speaks. It's God who speaks through the bush. And he says, Moses, take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. And his basic charge to Moses is, I want you, Moses, to go and free my people. You go to Pharaoh and you say, let my people go. And you remember Moses, send someone else. I'm not eloquent. I have a, I have a stutter. Send someone else. Who makes men to speak and makes them mute? God's answer is. In other words, I'll give you what to say. You listen to me. But interestingly enough, when Moses says, who shall I say sent me? The burning bush, God through the bush says, tell Pharaoh, I am sent you. And Jesus says to this hostile crowd, before Abraham was, I am. It was me in the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the burning bush story. And you can understand why they were so outraged. Who do you think you are claiming to be God? And so they go to pick up stones to execute him, and he disappears from their midst. Or how about this claim? I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. You saw that? Not only did I see it, but I was the power behind it. And claim after claim Jesus Christ makes. The one that we just mentioned earlier, John 14, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father unless they come through me. I mean, that is an outrageous claim of exclusivity, claiming to be the only door by which you, you can be saved. Or to repeat Paul, or, or I'm sorry, the apostles, there is no other name in heaven by which we can be saved. There's only one. Okay? So this is all wrapped up, if you will, in truth. Truth as defined by truth himself. Now, on a secondary level, truth is whatever is true. There is actual real truth in the world, and it's not subjective. It's objective, solid, and you can't bend it, twist it, or deny it, regardless of what the postmoderns tell you. Truth is solid and real, and logic demands it. Now, that being said, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 gives us insight into the great liar, the capital L liar. His name is Satan. And 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says this, that the God of this world, this world, 
that you're living in, that I'm living in. He is small g God over it. He gets to rule it in a small way under God's sovereignty. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, those who do not see Jesus as the truth. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the glory of the gospel shining in the face of Jesus. The good news about Jesus, they can't see who he claims to be and they're not buying it. No, he's just another moral teacher. He's a great moral philosopher and we'll use his words if it suits us, like love your neighbor. We like that, but we don't like the one who said it, okay? The deal with Jesus is he is the opposite of the great liar. This is what you need to see. Jesus, in that same chapter where he's about to get stoned for saying, I am, he says something about Satan that we must remember, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. There's only a few of us in here who are bilingual, okay? A few of us. But most of us, our native tongue is English. Listen, when Satan speaks, his native tongue is what? Lies, deception, deceiving, and it's with intent to harm and damn. And so here's the recommendation, friends. If you're operating in the realm of deception for your benefit, you are walking satanically. Own it. When you lie, you are more conforming to the image of Satan than you are conforming to the image of your Savior if you are indeed saved by the Savior. So we, listen, as God's children, united to Jesus by grace through faith, connected to him by his work on the cross and resurrection, we need to be people of the truth. And we must see the truth, but listen, we must tell the truth. And listen, I understand that the truth will sometimes set you free and the truth will sometimes make enemies. Friends, we must be people of the truth regardless of what we perceive the consequences to be. If we use truthful speech, we know we are in line with God's will. And we know that Romans 12, 2 says that we should test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That means you don't test and see what God wants you to do for breakfast tomorrow. Rather, that means his will is clearly laid out in his word, and you test it by doing it. And by doing it, you will see experientially that it's good, pleasing, and perfect. And his will for you is to be people of the truth. And so some of you are surrounded in a false protection of lies. And my encouragement is come out of the lies, come into the light, and begin to tell the truth. Do it tonight. Be on the side of God, which is truth. And so whatever is true, we must meditate there. We must meditate there. And this takes discernment for sure. All right, number two, honorable. What is honorable? A good way, just for you who study the Bible, a good way to find out what a word means if you don't have, you know, fantastic Bible software is for you to look at all the English translations and see how they translate a word. You know, there's over 450 English translations. 
And the translators have the same Greek word that they're working from. And the way they translate it gives you a hint of the flavor of the word, what it actually means. So here is about five or six English translations for this honorable. ESV, whatever is honorable. Here it is. Noble, venerable, honest, worthy of respect, wins respect. Wins respect. It could also mean the characteristic or state of being or of things that are honorable, worthy, venerable, holy, above reproach, worthy of respect. That's what it means. That's, that's a lot. But here's what we can see. We can see that Paul used this elsewhere. And you know where he used it? It's in 1 Timothy 3.8, and it's in the qualifications of a deacon. Deacons must be dignified. That's how it's translated there. Same Greek word, dignified, honorable, noble, noble. Titus 2.2, Paul also uses it. And he says of older men, this is a charge to older men. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, dignified. There it is. Self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. It could mean worthy of respect because of your life, because of your maturity, and it could mean well-respected. So, so we are to meditate on, think about what is respectable, honorable, noble. And listen, that includes what is seen that is noble and honorable also in non-Christians. Now, now Vince gave this to us last week, but I'll repeat it. This list is more taken from the realm of Greek philosophy than it is the Old Testament. Hey, this, this would be... In any Greek philosopher's school, these virtues would be extolled. And so what Paul is actually doing here is he's taking uh, this Roman colony of Philippi and he's saying, look, the the non-Christian neighbors see these as beautiful traits. And you know what? We can actually take them a step further than they, they can. We can fulfill them with godliness, with Jesus' gospel. We can fill them up with real truth and real substance. That's what he's doing. And so, in light of common grace, which is the, 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 the teaching, if you will, the doctrine, that God casts his goodness and grace to all humanity regardless. Regardless. He gives gifts to men, period. He, he throws them out and casts them abroad. And so Matthew Henry, the the great Puritan, said this, listen, if there be any virtue, think of these things. Imitate them in whatever is truly excellent among them. He's speaking of people. And let not them, these would be non-Christians, outdo you in any instance of goodness. Like we should not be being outgooded. Not Christians. And Henry continues, we should not be ashamed to learn any good thing of bad men. Now, some of you don't like that. Like, like those of you who have a more fundamentalist bent, a more careful bent, you're like, I'm not learning anything from bad men. Nay, absolutely not. Okay. Henry the Puritan says here, there is virtues by explanation of common grace in non-Christians and even bad men that you can learn from. Is it not true that all truth is God's truth, even on the lips of a pagan? So, so, so if a pagan philosopher, 
or we could say in our day, a motivational speaker stumbles upon some great truth, whose truth is that? Is it not God's? And so you, you can take that and fulfill it, fill it full, because you know the God whose truth it is. Does that make sense? Henry continues, we should not be ashamed to learn any good thing of bad men or those who have not our advantages. Now, that means a lot, but it could mean education. It could mean privileges. It could mean pedigree. It could mean advantages. Fill it in. In other words, if you're humble, everyone has something to teach you. It's a good rule that if you meet someone, you should say to yourself, they know something I don't, and I can learn from this person. Even if it's a street person begging for change, they know something I don't, and I can learn from them. That's a position of humility, and that's a position of wisdom. A position of foul pride says, you can't teach me nothing. Or in the words of a very popular song, can't nobody tell me nothing. Okay, don't start singing it. <laughs> Proverbs 8 fills this honorable up well. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice on the heights beside the way? At the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out. What does she cry? To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak, there it is, noble things. And from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you desire cannot compare with her. This is, this is wisdom calling and saying, look, I have what is most valuable and we know from the New Testament that Jesus himself said, there was one in the Old Testament who was the great holder of wisdom, Solomon. But I, one who is greater than Solomon, is here. And so we, we come to Jesus for the embodiment of wisdom as well as truth. We come to Jesus for the embodiment of what is noble and honorable. Yet, with discernment and wisdom, listen friends, everyone has something to teach you if you're humble. What is just? This word just means right or righteous. It's simple. Just means right or righteous. And, and, and often we stumble over this. We're like, I, I don't know what's right. I don't know what's just, but you do. You know how you know? What do you want done to you? How do you want treated? Is this not the wisdom of Jesus? In the Sermon on the Mount, wrapping up the sermon, he says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. You want to sum up the, old, the whole Old Testament? How you want to be treated, you treat other people. That's what's right. That's what's just. You want people to respect you? 
you respect them. You want people to give you the benefit of the doubt? You give people the benefit of the doubt. You don't want people to think ill motives of you? Why are you thinking ill motives of others? You don't want people to judge you by the color of your skin? Don't judge other people by the color of their skin. And on and on we could go, couldn't we? How do you want to be treated? That is right. That is just. You see, God has built into us a right and wrong detector. Now, granted, it's broken, and we love the things we shouldn't, but as a general rule, Jesus is wise here, very wise, and rightfully so. He's God. So if you sin against someone, what do you want? You want mercy and grace and forgiveness. So what should you do if someone sins against you? What's right? To be merciful, to be gracious, and to forgive. If you want people to think well of you and to think that you have the best intentions, what should you do for other people? Think well of them. Think they have the best intentions. Do you see how this little verse, if we could live this out, would literally change everything? Everything. Like your marriage would revolutionize. Your relationships at work would revolutionize. Oh my gosh. Our church would revolutionize. Oh God, do it to us. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Oh, no one anything. Same writer to the Philippians. Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Remember Jesus said, this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Well, love does what is right, what is just. So here's the deal. If you don't love someone, you're not going to think justly or rightly about them. Rather, you might think suspiciously about them, and you might think ill of them, but love fulfills the law. Look at verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And I love verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of of the law. So what we could say definitely about the shootings that just happened in the last 24 hours, no love was present. Because look, love does no harm to a neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Anyone who you come in contact with. Anyone who bears the Imago Dei, the image of God, is your neighbor. And so anyone that would hurt another person is not acting out of love. They are not acting out of truth. They are not acting out of nobility. They are acting out of satanic motivation, period. And listen, when you verbally assault people, maybe even in your own home, you too, you too are not acting out of love. You are not fulfilling the law. Rather, you are looking more satanic than godly. And I love you, but you need to see that. Now, praise God for those in Christ, there is no condemnation, right? And so we repent, we dust ourselves off, we get back up, we, we put band-aids on our wounds, we ask for forgiveness, maybe we have to forgive also, and we move on. We press forward, and as we learned a few weeks ago, we forget what was behind. And that sometimes means what happened five minutes ago, and we move on. All right, let's keep going. Whatever is pure, whatever is pure, now, this certainly has to do with sexual purity, and this is where we all go, right? This is, this is the normal explanation of pure, but it also means this, without defilement, morally clean, innocent, innocent, innocent 
modest and perfect. Okay? Pure, pure thoughts. Now, I, I, I love to be around little, little children. You know, my son is 14 months now, and there he, he does get mad, and he throws his little smack hand, and you can see the sin in him, and you can see the anger. So he is a sinner in need of a Savior, no doubt. But there in him is a kind of purity that is not 100% pure, but there's a purity in him that he does not understand evil the way you and I do. It's as if we've tasted the forbidden fruit and a part of us really likes it, right? Otherwise, sin would not be attractive. We would never sin. Like you wouldn't have that deep desire to tell them how it really is because you're furious on the inside and if you need to let it out, right? That wouldn't be there if you didn't somehow love the sin that so easily entangles you. And, and so in children, there's this kind of pure ignorance of the depths of sin. And I love it. I love to be around them for that fact. Now, I'm not saying children are innocent. I'm not saying they're not sinners. I'm not saying they haven't inherited the sin nature from Adam. Yes, yes, and yes. But there is an innocence or a purity in children that we must seek to preserve. And for us, we need to live lives of purity, innocence in our thoughts. I mean, let's, let's run far from maliciousness. Let's run far from what is immoral, from what is shameful. Oh God, help us, give us grace to have purity in our meditations. Wouldn't that be beautiful? One book that I love so much is called The Imperfect Pastor. He calls Jesus um, the pure one, and he says, the pornless eyes of Jesus. <laughs> never looked with lust. Never looked without innocence on anyone. It's so out of our categories. So out of our categories. But yet, that innocence, that purity, friends, is yours if you're connected to Jesus. His purity swallows up your impurity. And you must, when you fall, and you will, remember the purity of Jesus for you, in your place as a substitute. And that on the cross, he took the punishment for every impure thought, every impure motive, every impure deed nailed to the cross. And friends, one day, we will experience the purity that we so long for. It's coming for you. It's coming for me. Oh, I, I cannot wait to live in a pure world with a pure heart, with a pure mind, and then everyone I come in contact with has the same pure motives that I have. It'll be beautiful. How about lovely? Whatever is lovely. This word carries the idea of attractiveness, like aesthetic beauty. And we know that if the Lord is the Lord of creation, He is the Lord of beauty, is He not? Think about the Grand Canyon. Think about sunsets. Think about flowers. Think about people. But if you're going to think about attractive people, you need to think about it in the category of purity. But any attractive person that you see or meet or see on television or in the movies, that's of God, friends. Any, any graphically arranged beauty in print is of God. He is the orchestrator of beauty. There is a fountain of beauty that finds its source where? God. Friends, one day we are going to meet the being 
from which all the beauty comes. All the loveliness, all the attractiveness in the world finds its source in God Himself, and you get to be with Him forever in His country, in His universe, a universe that will have no defilement, no foulness, no disgustingness. Here's the opposite of what is lovely. Let's say you're jogging down the road, and you see the unfortunate happening of somebody hitting a deer but this deer was hit about a week ago and it's right on the side of the road in your path and you can smell it from hundreds of feet away. And as you get closer, you see the flies. And as you get a little closer, you see the little white worms and I'll stop from there. What are you gonna do? You're going to go to the other side of the road and you are going to go around that disgusting hideousness and you are going to continue your jog. But what you're not going to do is run up to that thing, hug it, pull it close, rub it all over you. Why? Why wouldn't you do that? Because it repels you. It is repulsive to you. You run away from it. And friends, this is how sin should be to us. This is how sin should be to us. A dead, putrid, decaying animal that's been hit on the side of the road. But friends, make no mistake about it. When you engage in sin willfully, you are hugging that dead corpse and rubbing it all over you. You are. And so may we, by the grace of God, go after what is truly beautiful as defined by God and be attractive to what is actually attractive. We need our minds renewed, do we not? Don't we need to be told what is beautiful and what is ugly? Because we, in and of ourselves, are attracted to what is ugly. We're attracted to what is disgusting. We're attracted to what Jesus had to die for. But yet, God is in the process of renewing us, changing us. And the the testimony of every Christian could be the things I once loved and the things I was attracted to, I now hate and I can't stand. Amen? Amen. Let's continue to be changed. Commendable. Commendable means admirable, good report, good repute, good fame. Something good that we want to see others walk in. We would commend this. I commend this to you. Something we would want others to walk in. You would commend it. It's like, look, I commend this restaurant to you. It is fantastic, especially for the price. This place, you've got to go. We would commend this kind of behavior. We would commend this kind of good. Now, Ed Welch, who is a biblical counselor, one of the best alive, wrote a little tiny book. Look how little this is. This is your book, this little one. This little book is also graciously in audio form. Yes. (laughs) And, And it's only an hour and 20 minutes on one speed. So those of you who like to speed them up, you could get it done even faster. This is eight ways to cultivate meaningful relationships. And I commend it to every single one of you who would say, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because this is how to do discipleship as practically as I know how to do it. In this book, here's a quote. Chapter three on know the heart. Practice seeing the good. Remember, commendable. The good in others. Not just good circumstances, but moral goodness. Notice when the person is patient when treated badly, kind when treated unkindly, forgiving, gentle, and able to say no 
to renegade desires. You see, I'm really good at seeing everything that's wrong. How about you? Isn't it easy to see the flaws in everything? Being a critic, being a cynic, that's easy. That comes natural. You know what's really hard? Being a good finder. Being one who searches out for the commendable. And friends, this, we have the charge of God's will here. Think about what is commendable. Now imagine those closest to you, how are you doing? Are you way more expertise at fault finding? Or are you good at finding the good? Let's do, let's do some examination real quick. What are you better at? Think about your spouse, think about your girlfriend, think about your boyfriend, think about your kids, think about your coworkers, think about your neighbors, every relationship in your world. Are you way better at seeing everything that's wrong with them? Or are you excelling at the good? Because Paul said, whatever's commendable, think about these things. Ed Welsh advises in this book that we should, we should search out the good and commend them. And then after that, we should talk about how people are hurting way before we ever mention their sins. But for most of us, step one is sin. And we're in attack mode. Did you know that in Romans 2, it says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? God's kindness leads you somewhere. Where? To turning from sin to Him. And friends, we should model that. We should be kind in our estimations of people and be good finders and commend. So, so here's just a little practical something. Look tonight and tomorrow, whatever relationship you encounter, find something good and let them know that you saw it. And be an encouragement. Don't just notice it. Actually say it to them. And if you find it hard to do so, I want to suggest that you may have a pride issue. If it is impossible for you to point out the good in someone else verbally, you are probably way more stuck in the chains of pride than you realize. Because prideful people can't recognize the good in others, and they certainly won't say it to them. Because in some twisted way, they think it diminishes them. And that's a lie from the enemy. So may we turn from that lie to truth. All right, let's keep going. If there's anything lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, excellence, this word could be translated virtue, truly worthwhile, excellence of character, recognized as morally virtuous, any moral excellence. Okay, this is the only time Paul uses this word in his 13 letters, and that's what it means. Virtue, worthwhile, excellence of character, recognized as morally virtuous by the society at large, and obviously with the filter of God's recognition too, and any moral excellence. Now, Peter uses this word in 1 Peter 1.5. He says this, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith, add this to your faith, virtue, which could be translated excellence. It's the same word. And then the same word again, with virtue or excellence, knowledge. And then Peter talks about how to grow as a Christian. So this word means virtue. It's recognized good character, even by outsiders. 
You're to think about this. You're to notice it. It's connected to the commendation, the finding of the good. So if there's anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, worthy of praise, again, this is you finding good. It's I see this in you. I'm going to praise this. Okay, here's, a, here's an illustration from my own life. My, my wife last night uh, thought about me. Isn't that great? She thought about me. And, and she made coffee this morning, that good number five out of five dark roast. And she put the water in the pot and she put a little cup, not a little cup, it's actually a giant cup. Praise God, it's a giant cup. And, and she put a little napkin over it and said, coffee's ready, smiley face. And all I had to do was push on, and the glory of God could be smelled throughout the room. You know there's going to be coffee shops in heaven, right? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and so that, I, I had to point out to my wife, thank you for doing that. Now, it took me later in the day, because I forgot. She was sleeping when I got up. But later in the day, I actually went to the garbage and I found the little <laughs> tissue paper and I saw it and I was like, oh yeah. And I went and said to her, babe, thank you for making me coffee today. That was worthy of praise. And I verbalized it to her. So how many of you do that? I mean, that, that is really a low-hanging fruit. That's an underhanded pitch and you have a wiffle ball bat. You can do this. And by wiffle ball bat, I mean it's fat. Underhanded pitch, it's coming slow. Crack. I mean, you can find something to praise in your relationships. How? Well, you're meditating on it. You're thinking about it. You're looking for it. And friends, we can even do this with non-Christians. Remember, common grace. Common grace. All right. Let's go to verse 9 and we're done. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So what Paul's doing here in chapter 4 and throughout the whole letter is he's saying, I'm not just going to teach you how to think and how to act. I am modeling it. Do as I do. This is what Paul said to the Corinthians. He said, follow me, finish it, as I follow Christ. I'm following hard after Jesus. Watch me. Walk in my steps. In three ways. Learned, received, four ways. Heard and seen. Learned, received, heard, and seen. Walk after me. Practice these things. Now, how many of you think, okay, I can practice those eight things? I can practice. You will not get good at this unless you practice Practice, which means do it over and over and over and over again. Now, as a former artist who used a pencil and markers and paint and spray paint and all that, listen, my first 1,000 plus drawings were horrible. Maybe 5,000. Only after hours and hours of painstaking practice did I even get a little good. So don't expect just because you read verse 8 of Philippians 4, now this is going to be your life. Oh no. Oh no. If only it were so. Right? God doesn't zap us into growth. 
If only that would work, right? Like just memorize this and boom, it's going to happen to you. No, no, you practice, practice, practice. That's my commendation and encouragement. And look at this. And when you practice these things, look what's going to happen. The God of peace will be with you. Friends, in other words, you're not alone in this. And this harkens back to just a few verses earlier where when we're anxious, we pray with supplication and thanksgiving. And what will happen? The God of peace, the peace of God, which transcends understanding. It goes beyond just the intellect. No, it's experienced. The peace of God will guard your heart, that's the inward you, and your thoughts. Friends, the promise here is if you will but pray and practice these things, your anxiety is able to flee from you. And rather, the God of peace and the peace of God will come near. Do you know what James said? James said if you draw near to God, then what? He will draw near to you. And and let's not just let this pass us by because this is a big deal. The creator and sustainer of the universe comes near to you. Two verses and we're done. Isaiah 26, 3 to 4. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. That's faith. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. You know what rocks are for people? Their solidness. Like if you have an option to build your house on solid bedrock or sand or uh, old mine shafts, which is my former hometown. It was an old mining town. Just tons of holes underneath all the houses. It's awesome. (laughs) You should build your house on the rock. And Jesus said that if you take his teaching specifically the Sermon on the Mount, into your life, you are like one who builds the house on the rock. And your life is that house. And this text is saying God will keep you at perfect peace. How? When you trust in Him. Now, there's only one way to have peace with God, and we know that's through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He Himself is our peace. How did He make peace between God and us? By Himself taking the punishment for our sins. By himself living out Philippians 4, 8 and 9 in our place. Having his thoughts totally fixed on those eight categories. And yet going to the cross and paying for our being unable to do it. So we trust, we have faith in Jesus. His perfect living this out in our place and his death on the cross for us not living this out. And by that Uh, suffering, death, and resurrection, we can draw near to God. And the peace of God, which passes understanding, can be ours. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. It's the idea that God is outside of time and space. He inhabits eternity. He is not like us. He is not stuck in our dimensional world. He who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. That means totally other than us, outside of our categories. Here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also, and also, with him, I would add her, 
who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Ray Ortland, who wrote a commentary on Isaiah, said this about this verse. He said, God has two addresses. One you cannot go to. It is too high and holy. But the other one you can go to. It's the lowly place. Friends, if you will go low, who will you find there? The high and holy one. The God of peace will be near you through Jesus by the Spirit. Isn't this a beautiful promise? Friends, we can have the nearness of God, each of us, by just trusting, by drawing near. And He's given us a filter by which to think through. So may we, by His help, change our thought patterns, change our meditations, change the way we see the world, and would we become more like Jesus and be less transformed to the world's standards, but be renewed in our minds and transformed into the image of Jesus? Oh, would it be true of us? We're going to take communion at this time remembering Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. He is our only hope to have not only peace with God, but to have the peace of God.